Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Hello and welcome to Mefe. My name is Amrita Ghosh and the title for today's episode is Presenting Kashmir Anun. It is a topic close to my heart and I have with me Dr. Hafsa Kanjwal. She's an assistant professor of South Asian history in the Department of History at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. She teaches the history of the modern world, South Asian history, and Islam in the modern world. She is the author of the new book, Colonizing Kashmir, State Building Under Indian Occupation by Stanford University Press, the book that we are going to talk about and much more. And Hafsa has written and spoken on her research for a variety of news outlets, including the Washington Post, Al Jazeera English, and BBC. Welcome Hafsa. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So I actually wanted to begin with the title of your new book. Colonizing Kashmir is such a striking title. In a way, the I really thought the present continuous tense reminds us of the ongoing state of colon, colon, colonization. And in your book, you challenge the binaries and the the concepts of colonialism, post-colonialism. Can we start with that? How there is this taxonomical challenge, the concepts when we come to Kashmir in terms of you know such binaries. How are you correcting some of these concepts and assumptions in the discourse on Kashmir? Yeah, thanks uh, firstly so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this, um, to our session. So when we think about colonialism, we often think about it as something that has happened in the past and now we are in a post-colonial period and maybe still reeling from the impacts of colonialism. But in general, decolonization has happened even if it's incomplete or imperfect. And sometimes the term neocolonialism is used to describe the existing power relations between the global north and the global south, especially through international institutions and the market economy. Yet power differentials within the global south are often not seen within the colonial frame, especially when the two regions, in this case, India and Kashmir, are geographically contiguous. So part of what I'm hoping to do with the book is to show that through Kashmir, or the context of Kashmir, um, can help us think through these, that even as some of these formerly colonized regions like India became independent from European colonial rule, their nationalist projects engaged in colonialism in regions that did not so uh, fit so easily into the national body. And then the movements within these regions would later derogatively be, be termed as successionism movements or separatist movements. Um, and I think that provides a very different lens into state formation, into the context of these new post-colonial nation states. And my book looks at the ways in which India enabled and justified its colonialism using things like democracy, empowerment, secularism, state building, and development. And these are all uh, processes that are seen as having a positive connotation. Um, but in the early years of India's colonial occupation of Kashmir, these processes actually worked in tandem to suppress Kashmiri demands for sovereignty or self-determination. Mm. This is fascinating because um, 
you of course are mentioning the post partition period of 1947 and you mentioned you know the state building mechanisms of democracy and secularism and so on and in your book you talk about the bakshi government that officially tries to integrate the post accession of 1947 and you know i was struck by this phrase you call it the emotional integration that was happening through all of these mechanisms of state building and i wanted to know more about in these kinds of state building technologies was it bifurcated or fragmented within the kashmiri ethos or did it gain traction as it was normalized um through the emergence of the bollywoodization of kashmir or you know these narratives of secularism and so on yeah so i mean one of the reasons why emotional integration is something that i look at is um, both the Indian government as well as Kashmir's client regimes, including Bakshi's regime, knew that in order to get consent within the Kash general Kashmiri populace, and especially Kashmiri Muslims who formed a majority of the region, um, to get con consent for the contested accession to India in 1947, um, that Kashmiris would have to feel emotionally integrated, that they would have to feel some kind of connection with the Indian nation state. And so state building was was one attempt for them to do so in order to basically say, look, if you can see the benefits that the Indian state can provide you, then you will kind of give that consent. This, the, the whole project will have some legitimacy. Mm. And what's what's interesting is that, I mean, part of what I end up arguing throughout my chapters is that the legal, financial, and political terms of India's colonial rule are that kind of integration was largely mm -hmm. successful um, under Bakshi. Uh, but Kashmiris on the whole were not emotionally integrated to India even after this decade. Um, and you can see this given that after um, Bakshi is kind of uh, out of power, there's massive mobilizations that happen, movements uh, for, for self-determination that happened in the 60s and of course would continue after that. Um, and part of, um, so, so yeah, so that, I think that emotional integration doesn't actually fully get successful, but what does succeed is that there is now a compradour class or a mm -hmm. collaborator class that in many ways is formed in this period, is entrenched in this period, and they became, they become invested in the maintenance of this colonial occupation from within Kashmir. And so that, that class is, um, exists. Um, but then in general, also part of what state building does under colonial occupation is that it leaves most people with very few opportunities to have alternatives. And so um, Kashmiris, in many ways, most Kashmiris become on a spectrum of resistance, but then also complicity uh, to their own oppression or, or domination. Um, because so much of the state building project, which relies on things like education, employment, um, Kashmiris become parts of the uh, a part of those systems, even if they may not feel um, an ideological kind of affinity with the Indian state. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really useful how you're explaining it that you know there's this obviously a collaborator um, sort of narrative that is going on that creates this sense of integratedness, right? But you know we keep going back to 1947 and. Um, Part of your book, I was fascinated, is also trying to free Kashmir from the entrenched partition narrative, 
right? And certainly the conflict goes on way before 1947 through various structures of oppression. We have the Dogra regime, pockets of resistance happening before 1947, surely. And yet, would you would you agree that kind of 1947, the moment and the consequent um, very problematic accession that happened becomes this defining moment after which everything gets intensified in a way? And how should we uh, rethink partition when it comes to Kashmir and understanding Kashmir? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, part of what uh, led me to the time period that I was studying is that, of course, I noted in studying or understanding the literature around Kashmir, uh, so much of it focused on the partition itself, 1947, the different nationalist narratives of that time. Um, and then, of course, there was some literature on the post-1980s or 1990s period with the armed rebellion. And so I was very much drawn to the time period in between and specifically the 50s. Mm. Um, but just thinking through kind of the, the pre-partition history, I mean, yeah, thing, things were very, very difficult when I um, kind of look at that Dogra period and the kinds of... Um, immense oppression that Kashmiri Muslims in particular were subject to reading about their financial and economic and social conditions, it was for sure um, very difficult. Um, what I think partition does though is that those kind of sentiments or those visions or demands for sovereignty that were emerging in the 1920s and 1930s and the 1940s, um, accession and partition disrupt a lot of those visions. Um, and subsequently, as India and Pakistan are able to gain political sovereignty or gain their independence, um, the possibility of that happening for Kashmir is, is lost. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, part of what I'm hoping to do in another future project it actually, is actually really entangle what some of those visions or earlier demands for sovereignty in this period were. Um, but in terms of the post-47 period and what becomes intensified, um, the, the state building angle, the development angle, I think fun fundamentally transforms the nature of India's relationship with Kashmir. Um, with partition itself, of course, there's been great work done uh, by scholars, including Kabiri Robinson, Christopher Sneddon, Ifat Rashid, that have actually challenged the even the partition narratives about Kashmir that we are left with many of these simplistic Indian nationalist narratives that just speak about a tribal raid that's happening and Indian soldiers coming in to save Kashmir from, you know, the, the Pakistanis um, and then the war between the two countries. And, and then that's sort of like the straightforward linear narrative. Um, but incredible work has been done to actually point to um, a much longer history of that period and looking at things like the Poonch Rebellion against the Dogra Maharajas, the Jammu Massacre, which fundamentally transformed the uh, demography of Jammu, the Jammu region, from a Muslim-majority region um, to one that now had a Hindu majority. Um, and so, so yeah, I think a lot of the scholarship is coming up that's both rethinking the, the partition moment itself in Kashmir, but then also expanding our analysis to consider what kinds of visions and uh, possibilities existed before that time period, um, and also what was foreclosed in the aftermath. Thank you for that. And um, I'm also thinking you're right that, you know, it, it gets completely uh, one kind of discourse has happened that, you know, it's just 47 and beyond. Um, and in your book, you 
also talk about identity and how it impacts this kind of state building. It also creates a certain kind of discourse, not just Bollywood kind, but, you know, Kashmiri identity, you call it a certain racialization. And I wanted you to unpack for our listeners what you mean by that, because it, it feels like it, it's a juxtaposition. At one end, um, the, you know, all the Bollywood films that they're doing is, you know, glorifying the exotic Kashmiri look, um, you know, the exotic other. But you also talk about this other being inferior in certain ways. There's a hierarchy being maintained. Can you talk about this kind of racialization and how it impacts the framing of Kashmir then? Yes. So throughout Kashmir's history, the various rulers and outsiders, especially the British, portrayed Kashmiris as shrewd, as cunning, as mired in poverty, really with no recognition of the kinds of conditions that had been inflicted on Kashmiris. Um, so I begin the book with a very patronizing quote by Nehru, the first, Indian, uh, the first Indian prime minister, where he basically describes Kashmiris as lacking virility and only interested in the comforts of kind of their day-to-day -day life and having their basic needs being met. Um, and despite being of Kashmiri Brahmin origin himself, Nehru in many ways advanced a lot of these British colonial um, narratives or tropes uh, about Kashmir. So one of the angles that I explore in the book is how some of these racialized tropes led to Indian colonial understandings of how to man manage Kashmiri Muslims in particular after the contested accession. So Kashmiris were described as being incapable of having politics or even political aspirations that they could easily be managed um, and that they would be fine and content under Indian rule as long as they could see the benefits or the material benefits of Indian rule. And so this is where some of that inferiority aspect um, comes in and it and this is precisely what defined or determined uh, the, the different modalities of control that the Indian state would then go on to use in Kashmir um, in this time. Wow. But then we also know that racialization can operate in different ways. It can sometimes have even like con contesting or contradictory aims um, yes. or results that it's that it's kind of seeking to do for the colonial power. So the second angle that I look at is how Kashmiris were depicted as being desirable, um, especially in film and tourism um, discourses. And that was largely to foster affective um, and dependent ties between Indians and Kashmiris. Um, there was especially in particular, and there still is today, a fascination with Kashmiris' physical features, their height, their fair skin, their light colored eyes, um, and describing these features as Aryan, um, which of course contributes to kind of a broader project of religious nationalism that's happening even in the, the Nehruvian period. And Kashmiri scholar Mona Ban um, has looked at how the racialization of Kashmiris as Aryans has to be read within the context of India's um, historic attachment to Aryanism, but then also its attachment to India's religious and territorial politics in Kashmir. Um, and I guess there's also a gendered, gendered kind of um, angle to this as well, because there's a particular fascination with uh, the Kashmiri woman in these tourism and film constructions of Kashmir. Um, so you have this focus on fair-skinned women that are working in the fields, looking shyly and demurely at the camera, uh, wearing the Kashmiri fedan or like the silver jewelry and the headdress. And so the bodies of women, I think in particular, which are almost like depicted as, as being as one with the landscape, is, is in a way doing the work of um, 
uh, serving as like a welcoming and inviting place for mm. the Indian tourists. Um, right. And I think this is what largely contributed to that colonial desire for Kashmir, for not just the land, but then also uh, the, the people. And I guess the last thing that I would say is that I see this continued even up until today, both like the inferiority angle as well as this desire angle where with the inferiority angle, you know, Kashmiris are uh, when uh, the abrogation in 2019 um, of Kashmir semi-autonomous status happened, Kashmiris were berated basically um, by India, Indian kind of discourses for being ungrateful for India's largesse um, yeah. or being corrupt, right? So it's all of these like, you are not, uh, even like their own collaborator regimes that they put into power to manage Kashmir um, were then, you know, ousted out uh, and also berated for, for being corrupt, even though that corruption was installed or it was a mechanism that was installed to entrench uh, India's rule in Kashmir. Mm -hmm. So there's that angle, but then um, also in terms of gender with uh, the the kind of speeches or statements by BJP spokesperson that you would hear after 2019, where now um, Kashmir was now open for Indian men to marry. marry. Yeah, and they would say fair skin, like in all of these, just it's like the fair skinned Kashmiri woman is now available for, for sexual con conquest, essentially. Um, yeah, so I think this is where both like that inferiority, but then also the desire um, plays in and like, precisely this dynamic is replicated across so many colonial contexts. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, it's something that we have to kind of uh, be attuned to. You're absolutely right. I was thinking about the moment post um, the abrogation of 370, that kind of talk about how uh, Kashmiri women can now met or the opposite, the men can, Indian men can marry Kashmiri women as if, you know, there's literally the begs the question of choice and agency and it's completely erased right and the the conquest narrative clearly um comes out but i'm also thinking you know you talk about the tourism films you're talking about these kind of bollywood narratives of light-skinned kashmiri women objectified um and with that i'm wondering you know the last couple of years post-COVID, the slew of films coming out that are also, again, highlighting Kashmir in some way. I was just thinking about it this morning. You know, we obviously had Bhatan um, last year, right, 2022. And then this year, I was looking at um, OTT platforms. There was this terrible film also from last year, Dhoka, around the corner. I don't know if you've heard about it. It's a small film that completely failed on, on the box office. And very recently, maybe just a couple of months ago, there was, there was another film from the um, from Southern India. I think it's named Kushi. Mm -hmm. uh, again, all of them, it's come back now in a slightly different way where not the Kashmiri women, but there's this shift to it's all about terrorism in Kashmir. You know, it's a hub of terrorists. So do you, do you see that kind of shift that's happening? And what does it mean for us to look at Bollywood? What is it trying to do with Kashmir now? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that terrorism shift actually happened a bit earlier in the 90s. Mission the films Kashmir. Like and Mission Kashmir. Yeah. So I think that was there during the height of the armed, uh, armed rebellion against Indian rule. But I think now, I mean, you know, what's, what's um, there's something sinister that's happening now where 
Um, I can just mention um, this movie with Ranbir Singh and Alia Bhatt recently. I'm just trying to remember the name. Uh, Rocky and Rani, you're right. That also yeah. has a love story playing out in Kashmir. Yeah, the love story. Yeah, and so this is the thing. Even uh, Masaba Masaba, the show on Netflix, which is really popular, right. the wedding that, you know, is, is, is in Kashmir and they all go to Kashmir. And so Kashmir is now, again, the space where urban India or Indian young people go. Uh, when they're trying to like fulfill their love story, get more clarity on their love story, meet their love, um, have some kind of like awakening. Um, and I, I'm seeing that happening again. And so, and it's really interesting because it's so recycled because this happened in the 50s and the 60s as well, where the that same character would go to Kashmir to have that awakening or some kind of self-reflection and so on. Um, but he, now I think what's what's so like insidious is that it's it's done like so seamlessly where yes. it's almost natural for the viewer to and like that yes of course they would go to kashmir like mm -hmm. why of all the different places in india would they not go there but they are setting setting these places in kashmir so um i think it's very much part of that whole discourse of yeah. uh, one still cultivating that desire for the place two still um like showing that it's integral to india um and 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 yeah and like creating yeah the 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 certain attitudes about the landscape and, right. and all of that. And it's done even in circles that, you know, I mean, I'm sure Musaba wouldn't consider herself to be whatever, but she is, she is partaking in that, in that normalization narrative. I think, you know, you mentioned something really interesting. It's the normalization. It's also the upward mobility. Certain classes are using Kashmir as a backdrop. And, you know, I was even thinking, uh, Roja, I'm glad you mentioned it because, you know, this Southern film, uh, Kushi, literally has uh, the male protagonist, and I don't recall the actors or their names. I was so horrified by it. I shut off after the first 15 minutes. I did not know it was based on Kashmir or what it was. It was on Netflix. And literally the male protagonist uh, has a job in the phone company and is shifted uh, to Kashmir as a posting. And then he's look running around with his phone, not getting connection. And I'm thinking, does somebody have, have to fill in why he's not getting a connection of the phone lines that have been same scrapped? Thing actually happened in Masaba. Oh, the same was, thing? Yeah, she couldn't get in touch with someone and it's because she was in Kashmir without a connection. And then if they don't obviously address why there's they, no connection. Why? This is so fascinating. And then clearly he's saying this is so beautiful and then bombs are going off around and then he's realizing this is not beautiful. This is a grotesque space. And, you know, this is so interesting in a way that it's coming back again and again as a way of normalizing now throughout India. Earlier, it would be a certain kind of regionalism going into Kashmir, but now other parts are interested in the same kind of narrative, right? Yeah. Which kind of leads me to a kind of a basic question. And I keep getting asked this. And, and you know, you and I have talked about this. You've come to my class also previously, which was wonderful. But you know, when I teach about literatures from Kashmir, uh, the new Anglophone literatures, or sometimes in translation, cultural productions, film, uh, photojournalism, one thing that does come back again and again is why is Kashmir so very important to India and Pakistan? And, you know, there's so many ways to answer this in terms of territory. And you mentioned the contiguous um, sort of... Um, geographical contiguity to post-colonial nations and there could be ecosystems that one can think of 
But what do you think? Why is this kind of a liminal space so very important to the post-colonial to other nation states? Yeah. Um, before I answer that question, I wanted to actually add one more thing to the last question, where I think a lot of this normalization is happening, of course, through cinema again, um, but it's also happening through a lot of different Indian designers and corporations where you'll see a lot of fashion designers like incorporating Kashmiri designs or aesthetics into their, um, you know, into their clothes or fashion. I think very recently I heard about an Indian eyewear company that has called its new line Gulmarg after the main tourist resort in Kashmir. So, um, so yeah, there is something definitely happening with the what the what does it mean for the Kashmiri aesthetic to be appropriated and mm. then and then used in particular ways and the sense of ownership that they that they all feel about it as well. Um, so yeah, so that's that. But yeah, I, I guess then linked to um, this la this other question that you have about why, you know, of course you can talk about it in terms of water, you can talk about it in terms of resources, geopolitically, you can talk about Kashmir's location, where it's actually located, the crossroads of so many different civilizations, bordering like Russia, bordering China, or, you know, close to that border. Um, for so long, Kashmir was like this other site for the great game between different colonial powers. Um, and so, yes, it has the strategic importance, but I, I don't think it's as simple as that. I think for India in particular, it goes, it goes much deeper into the kinds of civilizational narratives that India tells about itself, um, both in terms of secular India, as well as like the, the Hindu nationalist. Mm. Um, even though part of what I try to do in the book is really show some of the overlaps between between the two. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the one thing that you'll always hear Indians saying about Kashmir is that it's integral to India, it's integral to India. And so when something is integral to India, what exactly does that mean? What is it integral to? Um, and part of, I think, what it's integral to is India's self-definition at, at, at in different moments or different times, where the way that artic India articulates itself is through Kashmir. So for Nehru um, in that Nehruvian period, uh, the fact that there was this Muslim-majority region, right, that was in India, was really important because it justified India's existence as a secular state in opposition to Pakistan, um, which was this, you know, theocratic Muslim state. And mm -hmm. so for Kashmiris to have chosen, even though, of course, we know they did not choose, but to have chosen to remain or be in India um, was like, it goes back to that that idea that this, this, this part of us, Pakistan, which was a part of this Indian civilization from this perspective, that mm -hmm. it's gone away, that territory has been lost, and we cannot afford to lose any more territory. Mm -hmm. And so Kashmir, like to hold on to Kashmir in that, in that, uh, like kind of dynamic is, right. is so you know it's like we will do anything in our power to to make that happen even like trampling on people's democratic rights like you know in starting in the 80s and on 90s killing them dealing with you know dealing them with them in the most vile and violent ways um so i think that's where it kind of the within the secular imaginary that's how it how it has manifested mm. but i think the other kind of parallel to that is this idea that this is a hindu it's part of the hindu homeland um mm. and the idea of the hindu rashtra if you look at maps of like uh india when it's represented in hindu nationalist imaginaries 
with the geo body of a Hindu goddess, the head of the goddess is uh, superimposed on the region of Kashmir. Um, and so to cut Kashmir off from India then would be to cut off the head of the goddess, uh, the goddess. And so I think there again, it's just this like obsession to hold on to it. Mm. Um, and and yeah, I mean, it's it's a very strange kind of uh, obsession. It's one that Kashmiris have had to pay for dearly with their lives um, mm. and their land. Um, but I think it's one that allows India to make like almost like unify this territory that in other ways wouldn't really have much to be unified. I mean, if you think about the diversity of India, language, region, culture, um, like I think Kashmir in many ways kind of consolidates Indian state formation um, in a sense that a lot of people are not even like willing to acknowledge. Um, it's kind of treated as a per periphery or some kind of exception. But, but think about if we go back to Patan, um, what does like, um, what's his name, Johnny, John Abraham, Right. What does John Abraham's like character like ask for? Like, what is the most important thing to India um, that he is asking for? Like, we will, we will, if you do this, like, you know, what do I want? I want Kashmir. Yeah, um, I mean, the, that rings in throughout the film, right? Mujhe Kashmir chahiye. Yeah. Time again, it's classic in a way. Because you, they know it's like they know that this is like even the filmmakers, Indian filmmakers, know that like this is the, uh, the audacity of the demand. Like, this is what he's asking for, something that we right. hold so dearly to us. Right, right. And so it's a very violent obsession. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's very sinister. Um, and it's it's ultimately, it's very colonial as well. I mean, this is but what- it's also implicating Pakistan, right? I mean, it, if it's consolidating the sovereignty through Kashmir, it's also eyeing Pakistan as the uh, ultimate other through mm -hmm. which Kashmir kind of becomes a conduit. Would you say yeah. that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And even, I mean, Kashmiri uh, aspirations, those in Kashmir who do want to aspire, you know, want Kashmir to be a part of Pakistan. I mean, that is seen like as completely abhorrent. I mean, the, the, the levels to which that sentiment in particular has been criminalized throughout history, which is interesting because I think part of what it does is one, it, uh, it denies Kashmiris any agency, um, any Kashmiris who are calling for self-determination, um, their aspiration, and even in the time period that I was looking at, was always seen as, well, this is only, this is Pakistan's work. Like, this mm -hmm. is, the Pakistan state is doing this. So Kashmiris have never been granted any agency, even if they want to join Pakistan, don't want to join Pakistan, it hardly matters. Like, um, they they themselves are not, are not political actors of their own right. Um, and we can see that in, in the diaspora, the way that diaspora politics also plays out, because um, oh. whatever you know, initiatives or advocacy groups there are for Kashmir in the diaspora, um, academics, people who are speaking out about what is going on in India, um, the Indian state and it's, you know, different right-wing like uh, groups uh, will, disinformation groups will say, well, this person is just an ISI agent with absolutely no, you know, no evidence of that at all. But that is exactly what they say because Kashmiris themselves could not articulate any kind of political aspiration on their own, it must only be done through like the auspices of the Pakistan state. Mm. Um, so I think that's also where where that plays out. And in this, in that process, Kashmiris uh, get completely erased. Right, right. Um, I'm also thinking, I'm a little curious right now to know how you began. I mean, what got you interested in this research on Kashmir? Could you tell us? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, so my family background is I was born in Kashmir, um, moved, of course, when I was very young to the U.S., but was always interested. I mean, I've always been interested in history. I've been interested in historical narratives, how they're formed, the kind of work that they do. Um, and whatever little I could find reading about Kashmir in terms of Kashmiri history um, did not match up with the kinds of stories that I was told at home about what Kashmir's history was. And so mm -hmm. um, when I began the PhD program, um, I was drawn, as I mentioned earlier, to that period in between the partition and um, the 1990s. And I thought I would actually do a dissertation or you know, a project on the entirety of that period in between. Um, but I was specifically drawn to the Bakshi period because of the ways in which he, in particular, was spoken about in uh, popular memory. Mm. Um, so on the one hand, people would speak about him as a traitor for having both led the coup against uh, his predecessor, Sheikh Abdullah, but also entrenching India's rule in Kashmir, um, finalizing the accession once and for all through the Legislative Assembly and so on. Mm. Um, but at the same time, people were, you know, would regard him as someone who had done something for Kashmiri Muslims, especially in terms of employment and education and that, you know, he had, like this discourse of uh, empowerment. And so I was curious to see how the two, like how can one person have like both, you know, speak people um, speaking about him in this way. And so what exactly was going on in that period? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of what led me to, to look through like state building and the role that state building played um, in entrenching in India's rule. Thank you for that. I do have one last question and we're kind of running out of time. So I would like to know about this because this has been on all our minds, I think, with the horrific violence in Palestine. And, you know, we get these images of children dying every day. It's been brutal. Um, but I was also thinking about the solidarity movements um, between Kashmir and Palestine. Has it always been there in history? I mean, I know I've read that, you know, protests in solidarity for Palestine are kind of completely uh, barred on the streets. And yet there have been in the past, um, you know, I've seen posters where people have come out to say free Palestine or in support of brothers and sisters um, of pa in Palestine. So I wanted to know if this kind of support for Palestine, do you think it gives um, a credibility, a legitimization towards Kashmiri resistance, or or how has it happened in history that you know this kind of solidarity network exists? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I I don't think, to be honest, there was any kind of formal um, solidarity network, or you know, perhaps on an informal level, uh, there might have been. I think Kashmiri Muslims in particular, in addition to many Muslims around the world, have always felt that solidarity with uh, Palestine, um, both for kind of the reasons of the Israeli settler colonization, the occupation, um, but also for the significance of um, the, the Masjid al-Aqsa for, for Muslims around the world. Um, so, but I think in, for Kashmiris in particular, there was a resonance um, in many different times um, especially in the 70s and 80s, where uh, with the first intifada starting in Palestine, um, just some years after Kashmir's armed rebellion began as well, and in many ways was also perhaps inspired by, by what was going on in Palestine. Um, 
And in the 2000s and 2010s, with all of the summer protests that you saw in Kashmir, um, where you know hundreds and thousands of people would take to the streets to protest one thing or another, and were met with live ammunition and pellet guns and you know arrests and all of that, um, I think like those scenes that you saw of like young kids throwing rocks. Um, and the tanks that were coming in, the tear gas, like those were very resonant with what people also saw in, in Palestine. Mm -hmm. um, and I would notice like when I was, especially when I was doing my field work, um, a lot of the pro-Kashmir graffiti, like, like talking about Azadi in Kashmir itself would be taken down um, right. by the Indian state and the army, but uh, they would kind of leave up free Gaza. Um, and to me, I read that both as like free Gaza, but then also like a, the, the tech, undertext or the subtext was to also free Kashmir, which they couldn't mm -hmm. say say in that, in that point. Now, of course, none of that is allowed. I mean, um, in 2021, this was after 2019, there was a Kashmiri artist who had drawn something for Palestine. He was he was arrested. And so even that public expression of sentiment or solidarity for, for Palestine has been completely criminalized. Um, and in the past, I mean, there would be protests in Kashmir whenever something would happen in Palestine. Um, where people would come out. And in fact, there was even a teenager that was killed. I can't remember the exact year, but he was killed in one of those protests at the Indian Army. I that. Um, I, yeah, I had my, so, so yeah. Um, so I think this is definitely, I mean, I can only imagine people in Kashmir right now are watching what's happening with absolute horror, um, but like are both unable to express themselves in terms of what's been happening with them, but then also now with what they see is happening to, uh, to the Pal Palestinians. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Hafsa, for this very great conversation. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thanks so much for having me.